Well, today as we begin a new series, the series is Why Christmas. It would be so helpful to have your Bibles open, your Bible app ready. So back to 1 Peter chapter 1. So that's where we're looking at today, 1 Peter chapter 1. And there's an outline on the back of the news if you find that helpful too. But let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for the gift of this day. Thank you that we can meet in this place and for those joining us online as well. We pray now, Lord, as we come to your word, that you would be so at work in the power of your spirit, shaping us, moulding us, challenging us, encouraging us, that in all things we might be conformed and changed in the reality of the living hope that we have for your glory and for your kingdom. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I wonder, what do you think is the best possible way to prepare for Christmas? Now, I haven't done a survey or a poll, anything like that, but my suspicion is that there would be a great diversity of opinions in this matter. How do we best prepare for Christmas? Perhaps you think, well, the best way to prepare for Christmas is to put up the tree. That's the best way to prepare. Others might think, no, no, it's not the tree. It's really all the decorations that matter, but please, no tinsel. I've tried to have a tinsel ban in our house, but that hasn't really been effective. Perhaps the more extroverted amongst us think, no, come on, the best way to prepare for Christmas is by getting your parties planned. That's how we prepare for Christmas. And then there's that very, very special group of people who think that the best possible way to prepare for Christmas is by singing and subjecting all of your friends, family and colleagues at every whim, at every possibility, with carols cranked to the max. Uh, quick plug, of course, you're invited to join our carols by Glowstick on December 7 and 8. From 7 to 8 p.m., please do come along. But I actually, I reckon that if you uh, arrived in Australia for the very first time, perhaps from outer space or something, it would be clear that the predominant way that we prepare in our culture for Christmas would be absolutely clear. That we invest a tremendous amount of time, energy and resources, not by putting up the tree or unpacking decorations or singing carols, even though we might do all of those things, but actually by getting our shopping on. There can be so many pressures to spend at Christmas to buy the best gifts, attend every function, host the most exciting parties. And don't wait until December, you better get going really early. In fact, just this week, we've seen all the Black Friday sales that they have grown from being one day to a weekend to an entire week, and even for some shops, all of November. Is that all we really have to cling to at Christmas? One recent study said... In the wake of, and amidst COVID-19, businesses are putting their faith, what in? In the consumer more than ever before. Culturally, Christmas and consumption kind of go hand in hand. But the real good news of Christmas really rocks that cultural boat. For whilst gifts and gift-giving might be great, the gift of Jesus is even greater. Therefore, the best possible way to prepare for Christmas is simply 
by delighting in him. I mean, if you add up all the hours that we'll spend researching, shopping, buying, wrapping all those gifts, imagine if we spent the same amount of time delighting in the wonder, delighting in the relationship with Jesus. It's what Christians, of course, have been doing for thousands of years. In fact, the word Advent, that's what it's all about. It simply means arrival or coming. Looking back to the first coming of Jesus and looking forward in great anticipation to his second coming, his return. So that's what our new series, Why Christmas, is all about. Through the eyes of some of the first followers of Jesus, it's all about seeing the difference that Jesus' arrival and his future return makes. So it's not just a cutesy story, but it's about hope that is real, peace with God, joy that completes, and love lavished on us. If you're a follower of Jesus, well, I hope that this is going to be an amazing opportunity to not just get carried along with all the business, but really this advent to refocus on Jesus and be prepared to celebrate Christmas in the most amazing way. And if you're not yet a follower of Jesus, well, this is an invitation. It's an invitation to be really immersed in the real story of Jesus so that Christmas will be like none other that you celebrated before. So first up, this Christmas, we can have a hope that's real because it's anchored to Jesus, certain of the future and transforming of the present. First, we can have a hope that's real because it's anchored to Jesus. So verse 3, if you have your Bibles open, which I hope you do, First Peter chapter 1, verse 3. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So here is Peter. He's writing to a bunch of Christian communities. So these are God's people in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, what we know is part of modern-day Turkey. And he's describing them, or he's described them as exiled and scattered. Now, we don't really know the circumstances that led them to living in those places. It appears that some may have been trying to escape persecution from elsewhere, but they're now scattered. But Peter, by calling them exiled, is also drawing a parallel between the time when the Jews were exiled from their home under Babylonian rule, so around 586 BC, all that which we've just looked at in our Daniel series, and the, the present predicament of the Christians living under Roman rule, who are a bit like the new Babylon. They're scattered and exiled, they're away from home, this is not an easy time. Yet Peter says that even through all of this, that they can have a living hope. Not just to get along with life, but have a living hope. A hope that's alive, a hope that lives, breathes, an axe. It's not just something on a shelf that you might ponder about from time to time, but a living hope that, that comes in and takes a grip on our lives and it transforms our identity, our circumstances, and our confidence. So often I think when we use the word hope just in our general way of speaking, we kind of mean simply something we long for. So you might say, I hope 
I get the job, or I hope I get this awesome Lego for Christmas, or that the borders open, or that I pass my exams. And of course, it's fine to hope for all those things, but you wouldn't want to live like your life depended upon them, because if they don't eventuate, then your life will come crashing down. But when the Bible speaks about hope, it means something altogether different. Not, I cross my fingers, hope it might happen, but it refers to something that's real but not yet. Peter says that we can have that type of hope, you can have that type of hope, not through positive thinking or effort or luck, but through God. See, the basis of our hope is not from within, but is external to us. It's not because of us. So note what it says, that in His great mercy, God in His great mercy, He has given us birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. I remember when I used to do a lot of work overseas in one particular country that had a lot of mountains, the only way that we could get to certain destinations was going through tunnels that had been carved out. There was, you know, no way over it, no way around it, no way under it, so you had to go through it. But here's the amazing news. Real hope isn't dependent upon us going through something. It's dependent upon what Jesus has already gone through, his death and resurrection. It's most marvellous news, for what it means is that Christian hope is not based on a concept, nor is it conditional on something happening in the future, but it's anchored to a person and a past event that we can research, examine the evidence of, and be confident in. Not that just Jesus died for us, but that he came back to life. We see how when Peter describes our hope as being anchored to the resurrection, he can't help for his words to be spilling over in praise. It doesn't depend on how good you are. It doesn't depend on how religious you are. It's dependent upon what Jesus has done. Actually, Peter says that as we put our trust in Jesus, verse 3, God in his mercy has given us new birth. It's like being born all over again. That phrase, born again, well, that can be misused and misappropriated in all sorts of ways in some circles. Uh, sometimes people ask me, are you a born-again Christian? To which the answer is, every Christian is born again. That's what Peter is telling us, that it's in his mercy that we have been given new birth. On Tuesday night, we had a leadership workshop, so for all our team leaders, it's always wonderful to get together. And at the workshop, we had an interview with three of our members of Sabats, with uh, Barry Stone, Kate Venables, and, and Courtney Wright. And we interviewed them about how they came to faith and how they have grown in their faith. And what was phenomenal was that every story was different. In God's mercy, some could pinpoint the exact moment when that, that happened or became real. In God's mercy, some could tell of a time in which they really significantly grew in their trust in the Lord. In God's mercy, some couldn't remember an exact moment, but they definitely knew right now in whom they had their trust. Some people could pinpoint a time, others couldn't. The point is faith in Jesus Christ 
means that you are born again. That when you trust in him, you become a whole new person chosen by God. I remember when I was applying to do some study, I really wasn't sure if I was going to get in. If I had done enough, if I was good enough, or how I compared with other applicants. But what we read about here is that the God of the universe has picked us. And it doesn't matter one bit what our achievements are or anything about us because it's dependent upon him. It's undeserved. So if you're here today and you love Jesus as your Lord, you should really take some time to revel and rejoice that that reflects that you've responded to God choosing you since the beginning of time. And if you're here today and you want to share in that same hope, all you've got to do is turn to the one who gives it. Second, we can have a hope that's real because it's certain of the future. Now, to say that we can be certain of the future sounds like a spectacularly audacious claim right now in our current climate. But the claim of the Bible is that whilst we may not know from one day or the next what it may bring, but that just as we can be confident about what Jesus has done, we can be confident about what Jesus will do. So verse 4. Actually, we pick up from verse 3. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Verse 4. And into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you who, through faith, are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. So note that the promise is not that you'll know the you know, upward and downward trends and swings of the stock markets or cryptocurrencies or even what we may face from day to day as followers of Jesus, but that when we're in Jesus, we can know that a glorious future awaits. So in Revelation chapter 21, we read of a future in which every tear will be wiped away, no more death, no more pain, the old order of things will pass away. In fact, it's really incredible that in the language that Peter uses here, there's an amazing sense of imminence in how he's describing this reality. He says that our inheritance, well, it already exists. It's kept for us. It's like it's just behind a curtain. It's ready to be revealed. And in the meantime, it's not going to perish, spoil, or fade. So it's not like discovering you know, the best vintage. Can you imagine? You discover the best vintage, a bottle of the best vintage, the most spectacular wine ever made, only to find out that it's been poorly kept and now it's ruined. It's not like coming home late to dinner, and so the meal's gone cold, so you have to heat it up in the microwave. It's not even like the kids' presents under the tree that you have to threaten to take away if there's too many tantrums between now and Christmas. No way. God's eternal kingdom is incorruptible and it's waiting for us. And for those who trust in Jesus, your name is on it. I remember an older gentleman, uh, a friend, who I once knew. He was a man of incredible faith and... It was always quite um, interesting that in his home, 
he'd always let his kids, now his kids, his kids were all grown up with their own kids, but he always let their kid, his kids put their names on the back of things in his house that they wanted when he died. Um, this is a much more common practice than I was ever aware of, but apparently this is what he did. Um, now, he was a very practical sort of guy, so I'm sure at one level he thought, well, this is just going to make things more efficient in the future and, and sort of, you know, head off any potential squabbling. But I think more significantly, he could hold all these things loosely because not only did he know that his life was not all that there was, but he also knew that a real inheritance awaited him. Nothing in this world, no matter what happens to you, can change one iota of the future which awaits. A number of years ago now, when Bishop Daniel, many of you will know Bishop Daniel, he's a member of our church, when he was interviewed about his life, including his time in one of the largest refugee camps in Kenya with hundreds and thousands of other displaced people, a place full of all sorts of unimaginable suffering and need, it was so phenomenal to hear of the way in which he describes this type of living hope. That because his life is anchored to Jesus, Jesus' death and resurrection, that because he was certain that Jesus would return, that how we face the present is totally transformed. Now, that doesn't mean, of course, that was easy, nor that he didn't long and still doesn't long for justice to be done. Of course, we should. But in the knowledge of how the story ends, he was equipped to face the challenges of today. That's what real hope does. Our hope for the future impinges on our present reality. We can have a hope that's real because it's transforming of the present. Verse 6. In all this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come to the proven genuineness of your faith, or greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory and honour when Jesus Christ is revealed. So I want you to note there's a beautiful logic to which Peter speaks here. He says that it's because of Jesus' past actions that we can be confident about our ultimate future, which means we can face our today with an entirely different perspective. So there's a cause and effect between future certainty and present living. It's really interesting that almost every research study that I've seen on this says that, that the more optimistic people are, the more money that they spend. <laughs> That's what's found in our society. But the Gospel says, the clearer we are of our certain future, not just a mere optimism, but a complete confidence of our future, the more we'll be enabled to face the challenges of today. All throughout the history of Christianity, we read stories of Christians who are willing to face struggles because the, the hope didn't come from themselves but always with a strong foundation what Jesus had done for them, that he'd saved them for eternity. Over the years, I have been so encouraged by the faithful examples, the faithful witness of so many people around me who have not only retained their hope amidst 
phenomenal suffering and challenge, but actually they've glorified God through that very suffering. The communities to whom Peter wrote, well, they weren't necessarily being executed, but we can read of what was facing them throughout the letter. We read chapter 2, verse 12, they were spoken against as evildoers. Chapter 3, verse 13, shamed for doing what is right. Chapter 4, verse 4, having a, they had abuse heaped on them for not joining in with godless living. And chapter 4, verse 14, insulted for the name of Christ. But Peter says that in the knowledge that suffering was not the final condition, that our main aim shouldn't be to avoid it, to escape, but to recognise there's like the process of impurities being removed from gold. doesn't mean there are things which are very bad. <laughs> but when we think about the challenges in life, I find this so confronting. You know, if I'm really honest, I would love to grow and glorify God through comfort and prosperity. That sounds really nice. That sounds like a great way to grow as a disciple. But in reality, so often the way that we grow and God is glorified is in fact through weakness. Now, at one level, that's really obvious. Because usually the people we most admire are people who have persisted through adversity. And when we look over our own lives, we can probably identify that the times of most growth, not always, but, but most growth are often in the times of greatest trial. See, being a Christian doesn't mean that we don't suffer, but it does mean that we suffer differently. We don't need to adopt a stoic approach that kind of pretends that there isn't a problem. We don't need to adopt a hedonistic, a pleasure-seeking approach that says, oh, well, if there's pain, then life isn't worth living. Christians accept that suffering is part of a broken world. But in the knowledge that suffering is not the way it will always be, we are free to grow through suffering and point to God in the process. That actually, even if we don't live through our trials, the final outcome is guaranteed. So, you know, Christianity is, is very honest. It, it neither denies the gritty reality of the present, nor tries to paint it as something for which it's not, but it rests in the assurance that if a new world is kept safe for us, then we too are being kept safe for it. Verse 8. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. For you are receiving the end result of your faith, the salvation of your souls. That word for soul, it doesn't mean just like the little immortal bit of a person or something like that, but it's actually a way of speaking of the whole person. And what Peter is saying is that being able to face trials and not despair is the very fruit that we are of knowing that we are saved. Real hope is alive. It's anchored to Jesus, certain of the future, transforming of today. You know, I really do not know what 2022 is going to bring. I don't know what the next month is going to bring, of what it's going to be like when borders open, of what restrictions will be like for churches of what variance might mean. But this is what I know to be true. That because 2,000 years ago, God entered our world, living, 
dying and rising, that we can face anything today with a hope that is real, looking forward to Jesus' return. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that it's in you and through Jesus, through his death and resurrection, that we might have a living hope. We praise you, Lord, that in your great mercy you've given us new birth into this living hope through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. Lord, we thank you that it's through him that we have an inheritance that can never spoil or fade. And so, Lord, we pray that this Christmas, as we prepare for Christmas, that we might renew our hope in you, that we might marvel and wonder and delight in Jesus, and the power of your Spirit, Lord, that you might equip us to face the challenges of today, with lives anchored to what Jesus has done, with lives lived in anticipation of his return. Father, I especially pray for today, for anyone here who uh, is not yet a follower of your Son. Lord, please be at work in the power of your Spirit, revealing your love to them. May we all grow in our delight of the hope that we have in you. In Jesus' name, amen.